0: Lesson time tonight. Father, we thank you for allowing us to be here, Lord. We praise your name for the fact that we can come to church and that we can study the church in the Bible. God, we just ask that you'd grow us closer to you tonight. Help us to learn something from your word. Help us to be reminded of something we already knew and teach us some new part of it. God, we just pray that we'd get to know you better, Lord, and get to know the church better, find out what part we play in it. God, we just praise your name for everything you're going to do tonight and ask that you'd use this church in a mighty way in this area. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm filling in for Mike Wells, so I'm sorry. Sorry about that. Thank you for laughing. I didn't know if people would be like, oh, okay, thank you for apologizing. If I hear laughs and I know, all right, maybe it's not as bad as I thought. Well, Brother Wells, actually Pastor asked me to fill in, gave me Brother Wells notes, and there's 10 pages here. So if you want, you can just leave now. Or you can stay for about three weeks because I'm never going to be done. All right. I don't know how he works it, how much material he tries to get through, but we'll just get through what we can. And praise the Lord for whatever we do get done. Uh, I tend to go like a rocket, so I'm going to try to slow down tonight and get in a little bit deeper. This is doctrines, right? So we're trying to kind of dig in a little deeper in the Word of God. Um, the, the, The lesson here is ecclesiology, so it's the study of the church. And ecclesiology is one of those fancy words that comes from the Greek and was brought into English, and just the study of the church. It's not important how fancy the word is, but just what it means. We're studying the church and what the Bible teaches about the church specifically. So the body of Christ and local called-out assemblies of believers as we practice, and as the Bible gives the example, in local called-out assemblies. So the lesson here starts out, the word church can mean wildly different things to different people. You ever had somebody kind of give you an idea that they sort of had a different, you know, image or different perception of what church is than you do? You ever heard somebody talk about going out and worshiping in the woods or just kind of worshiping wherever they are? You know, kind of just, just expressing the fact that they don't believe that this thing that we do here tonight or this morning is what the church is. And really, the body of Christ is broader than what we do here. Uh, but I like to look at it this way, and this is not in the notes, so you know, don't blame Mike Wells for this. Blame me if, if, you don't, if you disagree, but this is kind of the way I look at it. The church exists universally, right? but be careful with that term, universal church. Because when you talk about the body of Christ, that's something we uh, are members of. So it exists universally, but we practice or we participate in it locally. Right. I, I can go out there in the woods and worship God, yes. Absolutely, man. When I, I went on a backpacking trip recently and went down to the Appalachian Trail a ways and then hiked down, backwards down to Crabtree Falls. And, man, I saw some things that made me worship God in my heart. Amen. Look at that creation. How can you not? Uh, but that's not the same as gathering together in a local assembly. The Bible says that we should forsake not the assembling together as a manner of summons. So there's a, w- a way that the church exists, and that's the body of Christ. But there's the way that we, it's organized and that we participate in it, and that's local. So uh, there's wildly different interpretations of that word. And that is why it's so important to understand what the Bible teaches. Why? Because there's some very specific teaching, some very specific doctrine, and then some really clear examples uh, you can see the church being carried out in the New Testament. And so when we look in the Bible and we see the way the apostles did it and the way those first few pastors did it, just barely a couple, you know, maybe one or two generations from the direct teaching of Jesus Christ, there's some really good examples to follow. Now the church is more than a building, the church is not church. You know, we talk about church as in church attendance, and that's the gathering together, but the church is more than that, okay? When we go out and tell people about Jesus, when we go to somebody's home and visit them and care for them, when we're just, you know, texting somebody to tell them, hey, Jesus loves you, I love you, it's going to be okay. Uh, When we do anything to serve the Lord as a part of this group, uh, we're participating in the church, and that's the body of Christ. The church is more than a building, uh, but it's a place where Christians meet together to grow in God's word, to glorify God, to edify and exhort each other, uh, provoking one another. What, what, is, what is it that we're talking about here? It's our participation in this group, this group that, that Christ created, this group that, that he started, founded, you could say. Uh, what, what does Hebrews ten twenty five say? For sake not the assembling together as a manner of some is, but exhort one another. So there's a contrast drawn there. Hey, you could skip out on church the way some people do. Now we're talking church attendance, right? You could skip out on that, uh, but the other option you have is to come and exhort one another. In other words, we come here, we lift each other up, we build each other up, we teach each other, we sharpen each other the way the Word of God says. That's the way the Lord puts it, so we might as well uh, go with that example, right? A church is God is a God-ordained institution, entrusted with the truth of God and a twofold commission from God Uh, so the church is not something that man made up it's not something that we just decided to get together we created some books or maybe we found some golden tablets nothing like this God created and ordained the church he said here is a, uh, a something that I have said will be and you should do What's one other thing, maybe government, right? Man sort of asked for that and God gave in, right? But the church was God's idea and he uh, meant for us to participate in it. It's God ordained. So he is the one that said that it would be and created it. And there's a twofold uh, commission from God and it must be understood and maintained. The the emphasis uh, or lack of it regarding the local church is going to determine your philosophy of ministry so what is my philosophy of ministry what does that mean ministering You know, does it mean that I'm a pastor? Does it mean that I'm a a staff member of a church? Does it mean that that I'm some evangelist or a missionary out there in a foreign country? No, ministry can be done and should be done by every Christian. Ministry is something that I believe God has given for every Christian to do. You can minister to your neighbor. Uh, You know, I I believe that when I put the sign up in my yard for um, what is that thing called? I always call it trunk or treat. What do we call that thing here? Family Fun Fest, that is a really, Family Fun Fest, F F. that is a really cool, I like that, it's clever, uh, but I was, I've always called it Trunk or Treat, because you get, you know, like a trick or treat, but you don't have any tricks going on, All right, so <laughs> I love that event, man, and I love that we get so many people at that, it's such a good way just to get people to come out with their families, and I believe when I put that sign in my yard, I was doing ministry to the neighborhood. Why? Because I'm telling them about an opportunity for them to hear about the gospel, for them to see a group that they can participate in if they're already saved, for them to just come and get loved on if maybe they're having a hard time in life right now. Ministry is is, is something that is is available to and I believe commanded to every uh, believer. So uh, when I form a, a kind of an image in my mind or a philosophy of what the church is, that will impact my idea of how ministry is done. I come here because I want us to exhort one another, and I want to be part of that. And I don't just come here. I participate in things outside of these, you know, little hour times that we meet. You know, sometimes it's a big commitment to come two or three times a week. Uh, But I like to do things outside of that. You know, I don't do it as much as I'd like. But, you know, not just this uh, meeting here, but maybe some special events. And I love men's conference and the camp uh, uh, outing that we do and things like that. I love these extra opportunities because you can get things done during those times. You wouldn't do when you're just here taking in a lesson or having a discussion. So the, when, I, when I see the church in, in a biblical sense, it'll form a biblical idea of what ministry is in my life. And when a person's belief in regard to the church are unscriptural. So if I have, uh, you know, ideas that no, not calling them wrong or right, but when they don't line up with the Bible, when they don't line up with what God says, uh, it's, it's unbiblical. Uh, so I would call that unscriptural the way the notes do and unsound that doesn't line up with God's word, doesn't line up with what God is telling us then they'll lead to wrong purposes for it's what the church's existence and wrong practices. If I don't believe the way God believes about why the church exists, then I'm not gonna believe properly uh, about my practices in the church. If I think the church is some ceremonial thing, then I might believe that we come and we practice our traditions and we do our ceremonies and then we go home and we eat pie. You know, That's not what the church is. Those things are wonderful. Okay, I don't mind some church traditions. I love going home and, and eating dessert together. And when we go to the Mexican restaurant and we see pastor, I love things like that. Fellowship is great. Fellowship and bellyship, amen. Uh, but there's more to church than that. There is a lot more and it's a lot deeper than that. Uh, and and uh, if we get the right practices in mind based on what the Bible says, uh, then we'll eschew we'll or we'll avoid some of those wrong practices. So let's uh, get started with the fundamentals of the church. The fundamentals of the church. Uh, what are we talking about when we say fundamental? You heard that term used in a negative sense before a fundamentalist. Are there some people that you've seen on the news maybe that are? it's a negative you know, connotation, the fundamentalist this or the fundamentalist that? Uh, I can think of a couple things, even one that was in the United States, a group in Utah that were called fundamentalists, and I would not agree with anything they uh, did or taught basically, almost none of it, all right? But uh, a fundamentalist is essentially just someone that believes the fundamentals of something, the basics, so the, what are the fundamentals? The basics, right? So the fundamentals of the church, I believe that we should be, and, and, and I believe this church is, fundamentalist in a positive sense. We believe the basics. We believe those foundational principles that are in the Bible. So what are some of those foundational principles? A major principle in interpretation is, <clears throat> before we discuss what the principles are, let's learn how to interpret them. Always make a difference where God makes a difference. What does that mean? I'm going to go out in the community and make a difference today. No, I think that's not what the notes are meaning here. Make a difference, in other words, draw a distinction between two things when God draws a distinction. So in other words, you know, uh, this hymn or this uh, scriptural song or this spiritual song or, uh, you know, maybe a a psalm. There's some modern-day psalms. You know, God may look at all these and say they're all godly. You know, but when God draws a difference between godly and ungodly or scriptural and unscriptural, that's where I should draw a difference. So <clears throat> we're not talking about preference here. Uh, and similarity doesn't necessarily mean the same. So just because things are similar doesn't mean they're the same. In other words, uh, I either qualify or I don't qualify for a job, right? You know, a lot of times now people believe in giving people a chance. Great, you know, if you want to be the one to do that, I, I would empower you. Hey, you know, more power to you. <clears throat> but bottom line, I either have the qualifications or I don't. You can qualify for something, and you can be disqualified for something. Um, <clears throat> and I believe that ideas matter, truth matters. There is absolute truth, uh, and and just because something is close to what God says doesn't mean it's the same. Now, the closer you get to what God says, the better. But let's not you know say, hey, uh, we're doing you know this in a similar way to what the Bible says. That's good enough. No, let, let's get it, you know, the way the Bible says, in every way that we can. And In any way that it's not, we'll, we'll work on that later. You know, we'll, we'll get as close as we can to what the Word of God says by getting each thing right, one at a time. When we realize something is wrong, we, we fix it. So the idea is not to get similar with what God's Word says, but to line up with it, to, to be in line with it. I like um, what I learned in Bible college, uh, in I think it was apologetics class, or science and faith, one of those. But uh, the teacher said, what I believe, and truth, really, uh, is not all in the Bible. It can't be. You know. You, you kind of wonder when you hear that in Bible college, what is he saying? Not all truth is in the Bible? It can't be, right? Two plus two is four. That's absolutely true. But God could, could not put all the truth that could ever exist in the word of God. That's impossible. It would literally be physically impossible. It would fill the universe and just keep on growing. Right, we could not even try to read it, and nor could we even store it in the universe. Uh, so, not all truth can be in the Bible. Not all truth is in the Bible, but the Bible is all true. Right. So, uh, what they taught us is, uh, you know, what I can, what I believe may uh, not be written in the Word of God. It may be external to the Word of God, but it should line up with the Word of God. So, it may extend beyond the Word of God, but it should line up with it. Shouldn't contradict. Right. I, there's, there's things that we do in the church. That are not prescribed by the letter of the Word of God. All right, what color should the carpet be in this church? I don't even know what color that is. <laughs> Light tannish. I don't know. Uh, but that's not prescribed in the Bible, is it? But all things should be done decently and in order. So whenever they pick the color, well, you know, the discussion that was had about the color, how it was ordered, how it was paid for, all that should be done decently and in order. So there's a principle that governs that, but it's not expressly written down in the Bible. So some things, you know, we're just, we're, we're basing it on the word of God. When people mix things that God separates, there's always confusion. Uh, so some things should be separate, amen? The, the church should be separate from the world. The church and the Christian should be separate from sin. We should be holy as God is holy. We're never gonna be perfect in this life, but we should strive for those things. And those are goals that, God sets before us and something that he does want us to do with everything that's inside of us so we, we should separate not mix the thing things that God uh, separates why because then there'll be confusion why how can that happen makes me think of evangelists um, and this happened more in like the '80s and '90s, when there'd be evangelists and they'd put all kinds of different denominations and worse than that, other religions on the platform, so that people could be dealt with when they come forward by someone of their own like faith. Now that's you know confusion at best. I think the confusion might might be a little bit um, you know complimentary there. Uh, what's going on there is you're just encouraging people to not believe the Bible, to believe something that the Bible doesn't teach. Right? So God doesn't want you to mix those things that he separates. Um, you know, this church is, is very open-minded. I appreciate that. The church is very loving. Uh, but what don't you see on the platform? Unbiblical teaching. You don't see that. What don't you see in even the discussion groups? We tend to keep it you know, based on the Bible. right? Everybody present their own opinion, but it's based on the word of God, and I appreciate that. Some separation is due there. Uh, in the Bible, God distinguishes a difference between three distinct groups. So here's where we're talking about separation and how God does that sometimes. Jew, Gentile, and the church. So 1 Corinthians 10, 32, if you want to turn with me, you can. 1 Corinthians 10, 32, the word of God says, give none offense. We're not talking about whether or not we're offending somebody here, but rather the distinction between the three different groups. But he says, give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the To the church of God. So, what are we talking about here in using this verse to support is the idea that the Jews, the Gentiles, and the church of God are three distinct things according to God. Why? Otherwise, he wouldn't have listed them as three distinct things there in a verse that he authored, right? Man didn't write the word of God, God did. Uh, So, when we see these three different groups listed out as separate uh, groups, separate items, distinctive groups, we know that God separates them in his mind. The Jews, the Gentiles, and the Church of God. So there's three categories there. and We'll go over those a little bit right now. Uh, More than half of the Bible relates to one nation. Do you realize that? More than half of the Bible relates to one nation. Isn't that crazy? You ever think about how much there is to learn in the New Testament? If you just get in there and try to learn it all, you could study for your whole life and not get it all. But then the Old Testament is a lot bigger. (laughs) You ever just put your hand in the Bible where the New and the Old Testament separate? All that old stuff, that's pretty much all Israel. And that is is crazy to me how much stuff is in there. Uh, More than half of the Bible relates to one nation, Israel. The Jews are God's earthly people. What does that mean? Uh, It just means that it's a physical group of people on the face of the planet. It's actually like a bloodline and a a group of people in a nation that he chose. uh, Not necessarily um, the, the same as what happens with the church where you choose to be a part of it by faith. Uh, so he did choose a specific people. It's an earthly people. They have material blessings and they have been set aside but not cut off. Look in Romans uh, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11. You can see the way God has worked and he is working now and the way he will work with the nation of Israel. Uh, and then there's the Gentiles. Non Jewish nations is essentially what Gentile means. So it essentially just means you're not a Jew. You, you, didn't come from that line, you're not part of that nation, you're not a part of God's chosen uh, earthly people. So uh, it's not necessarily a a meaning or a a matter of whether you're uh, saved or not, but just the fact that you're not a Jew. It's a term used in the New Testament, often though, to designate the masses of unregenerate humanity. So what does it really mean? It's just a, a, a designation or separation, hey, there's people that are not Christians, that are not part of the church, and some of them are Jews and some of them are Gentiles. You can look in the Bible and see that there's those distinctions being drawn often. How do we know that? Because you know, look at some of the discussions in the New Testament they had when they were trying to de- decide things in the church. And James stood up, I think it was Acts chapter 14 or 15, and he said, hey, let me get my sentence here. Let me tell you what's gonna happen with these, you know, arguments and discussions about what we should tell Jews they have to do now that they're saved, you know? So there's this, you know, distinction being drawn often uh, you know, about the fact that some people are getting saved, and they used to be Jews, and some people are getting saved, they used to be Gentiles, right? So there's there's these three different groups. Then uh, the church. The church is a called-out assembly of believers, uh, and, it, you know, it's composed of both Jew and Gentiles, so the, the, the church is not necessarily one or the other. It is, uh, is, is both um, types of believers. If you turn with me, in fact, to Galatians 3.28, there's a Good verse here. I think that's uh, great to see on that subject. Galatians chapter 3. Microphone tried to leave town on me. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. What does that mean? There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. There's obviously Jews and Gentiles or Greeks as it's written here in this verse in the church. There's bond, there's free, uh, there are male, there are female, right? We know these things. But what is the word of God really saying here? The, the end of the verse clears it up for us. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. What it's saying is no one's better than any other. We're, we're, we're not, we're not you know, a Jew anymore if we're saved. We're not a, a Greek anymore or a Gentile anymore if we're saved. We're just Christians now. All of us are Christians just the same as any other Christian. Uh, so I, I kind of like the saying the foot, the ground is, is level at the foot of the cross. Uh, in other words, you come to Jesus now, you're just saved by grace, right? That is me. I believe I'm a sinner and I'm just a sinner saved by grace now. Right? So I'm a sinner just like any other sinner, and I'm a, a, a saved-by-grace sinner just like any other Christian uh, is. But there's you know, no separation or no de- designation between the different groups once you become a Christian. Uh, we're all just Christians. So I like this note. When a Jew or Gentile trust in Christ, they're no longer Jew or Gentile. They become a part of the church, and ethnic differences or Jew or Gentile uh, disappear. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 18. We won't read that, but it's a good place to look. For some detail there. So when you're reading scripture, uh, always ask yourself, I like this, who was this written to? So if you're reading a passage, ask yourself, what is the intended audience here? Now, there's more questions you can ask about any scripture, aren't there? Uh, who is the author or who's the, the one who wrote it down? Who's the recorder of the scripture? God's the author, right? But who recorded it? And where were they when they wrote it? And what time period was this? And who was with them? Who's around them? Was this some story that was being told and it was being recorded by somebody watching? Or what, all these questions you can ask, but here's an important one you can ask. Who is the intended audience original? Obviously, when when God said he'd preserve his word to all generations, we understand that means that the word of God was written so that we could read it today, amen. But uh, all these parts of the word of God, especially a lot of the letters and then some of the history, it was written for specific people to read at the time. So when Paul wrote a letter to, you know, the Corinthian church, he meant for them to be the original uh, audience there. So, who was it being written to can be asked concerning was it written to Jew? Was it written to Gentile? Was it written to the church? Uh, if you err in understanding which of the three groups um, it was written to, then it will cause you to err in your theology. How can this happen? Well, if I read something you know, God is commanding the nation of Israel to, to do, say, you know, give an actual physical sacrifice of an animal, and I go, okay, well, that's what God intends for His people, and the church is His people, so we should sacrifice an animal. Well, <laughs> okay, you say, well, that's just silly. No, 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 it's not, because there's Christian groups in this country today right now thinking that they are members of the nation of Israel. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm not criticizing anyone, I don't want to put anybody down, uh, but that is an unbiblical belief. We are not the nation of Israel. So, you know, when you look at a passage, you need to know who uh, it was originally intended for, even though we're supposed to be reading it today as well. Uh, who is it actually written to originally? So, you don't want to err in your theology because of things like that. It leads us right into this topic, what the church is not the church is not Israel and we just discussed this a little bit but in more detail uh, Paul proves it in the book of Romans now how can you see that Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 8 are written to the church and you know it's it's written concerning the church and a lot of church doctrine in there there is so much doctrine in the book of Romans you just get in there and read the book of Romans over and over again read it every month and you'll be shocked how much is in there Uh, if you just get the Romans road then you've you barely even touch the surface of, a, of an iceberg that is waiting under the surface of the water there. Uh, but Romans chapter 9 through 11 is written to or about Israel, and it's sort of a parenthetical portion. So it's sort of just like a, a little bit of a pause and separate subject right there in the middle of the book of Romans. And then the church is in view in Romans 1 through 8 and 12 to 15. But when Paul stops in Romans chapter 9 to 10, or 9 through 11, He stops to remind us that God is not done with Israel. Why would he do that? If you had to pick a subject for, you know, maybe a dual subject for the book of Romans, what would you say it would be? I might say sin and salvation. Now, there's more in there, but I think it's all kind of targeted at sin and salvation. Why do we try so often to lead people to the Lord using the book of Romans primarily Uh, Because there's so much of it in there, and all of it's sort of geared toward that. Paul talks about the nation of Israel. Even stops in in chapters nine through eleven. We say, well, this is all is is kind of oriented toward and talking about the nation of Israel. Well, what do you see in Romans chapter nine through eleven? I see Romans chapter ten that really kind of spells out exactly how you accept Jesus as your Savior. Man, why does he stop talking about the nation of Israel and say that God's not done with them? Because God is not done with them. Paul says, "Hey, I'm a perfect example of this fact that, that I'm saved." You know that, that Paul, God wants uh, to, he wants uh, the nation of Israel every uh, uh, excuse me every Jew to become a New Testament Christian. He said, "I'm the perfect example of that of the fact that God's not done working with the nation of Israel." So Romans nine, God's past dealings with Israel. Romans ten, God's present dealings with Israel. He deals with them on the salvation of God. He says, hey, uh, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Why would God be addressing the nation of Israel and say, whosoever, you ever witness somebody and say, now whosoever, what's that mean? What does that mean? Somebody tell me right now, what does whosoever mean? Anybody? Anyone? It doesn't mean just specific groups. It doesn't mean only you and not me. It doesn't mean only people that were smart enough not to wear a jacket tonight, right? It, it, It means anybody, right? I like it when people say, hey, you can put your name in there if you want. He's like, oh, they're corrupting the word of God. No, they're not. They're just making an illustration about the fact that it means anybody, right? Anybody. Why would God do that when he's talking about the nation of Israel? He's saying, hey, it's for you too, nation of Israel. Don't forget me. I haven't forgot you. I believe that's kind of what God is doing in Romans chapter 10. How do individual Jews uh, or how can they be saved? There's no difference. In the individual Jew or Gentile, we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. We read that verse already, didn't we, where it says there's no Jew, no Greek. What does that really mean? It means that it's available to and attained by every individual on the face of the planet in exactly the same way. Because of Jesus and through him and faith in him and calling upon his name to ask for salvation, that's how you get it. There's no other way. You can work as hard as you ever want to work on anything in your life on being a Christian, and you would be disappointed if you never asked Jesus to be your savior Uh, when you get to to heaven and find out about the judgments that are gonna happen. Look in Matthew chapter seven. It is a a scary kind of chapter when Jesus himself was standing on the face of the planet and talking about, hey, there's gonna be people that come to me, and, and I tell them, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. So there'll be people that thought they were Christians and then don't get into heaven. We know that for a fact, it's in the Bible, right? But here's what is scary about it, these people, Go to him, and he said, standing on the face of this planet, incarnate, in the physical body, he said, they'll, they'll tell me, Lord, Lord, people who call Jesus Lord won't get into heaven. What does that mean? It means they didn't accept him as Savior. What does he give as the distinction in Matthew chapter 7? Why did he say that he's going to tell them, depart from me? He said, I never knew thee. You see, he didn't say, I didn't get to know you very well. He didn't say, uh, you know, we just didn't have the right chance to, to warm up to each other. He didn't say, you didn't serve me enough. You didn't do this. You didn't do that. No, he just said, I never knew thee. Not I didn't know you well enough. I never knew. What's that mean? You know, I know a lot about certain guys. Biden, Trump. What's that guy? Elon Musk. I know a lot about these guys. Well, it's all over Twitter or X. now. X. Sorry, it's not Twitter anymore. X. Whatever that means. Now, there's a black X on my phone. I'd rather delete it. Uh, but I, through these things, I learned a lot about these people, but I don't know them. I don't know them one little bit. Why? Because I've never met them. Jesus is saying, hey, I never had that moment where you asked me to be your, your Savior and I became your Savior. Never, ever, ever met you. I don't know you at all. Right? That's the only way to not know somebody at all is you've never met them. Romans chapter 11, God's future dealings with Israel, sincerity of God in keeping his promises to Israel. He doesn't just say hey you can become a Christian if you want to. Now let me move on to the gentiles. <laughs> he says, "No, I made you some promises and I'm going to fulfill them." Why does God keep telling us in his word, "I'm good, I'm good, I'm good." Not just I'm okay, but I'm good. He tells us, I am a good God. I love you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to take care of you. I've made all these promises, and I am going to fulfill them. Why? Because it's easy for us to forget that. It's easy for a man to not know and not be secure and to doubt and to question and to wonder and, and really just not be aware of the fact that God is good. He has to tell us, right? If, nobody, if God didn't tell us, nobody would ever tell us that God is good. He had to tell us so that we could tell each other, amen? Uh, and th- th- all this brings up a question. Is God through with Israel or is he done with Israel? I like his spelling here, T-H-R-U. That's like the southern through, isn't it? Is he through? Is he through with Israel? No, he's not. God's not done with Israel. Amen. He is going to keep working with them, keep trying to get them to accept Jesus and keep fulfilling his promises in their life. Just the same as he'd do for any other person. Uh, But he answers the question clearly. Let's go to Romans chapter 11. If you don't turn to anything else, turn to Romans chapter 11. This is really good. That is uh, in the New Testament, just in case you're wondering how to turn to it. Just turn to the skinny part at the end, and you'll find Romans somewhere in there. Romans chapter 11, verse 1. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. Man, that's so deep and theological, isn't it? (laughs) I wonder what all that means. Very simple, isn't it? Man, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. No, he hasn't. The Bible just spells it out for us in one little uh, uh, short bit there where he just says, no, I'm not going to throw away the nation of Israel, and I haven't. Uh, so the church is not Israel, but God's not done working with them either. Uh, the church is not the kingdom. You know what the nation of Israel is confused about? Why? Why? Because the church was a mystery. They were confused about what God was going to do for them and how the, the Messiah was going to deliver them. How is this deliverance going to come? And they learned about the, the, through their scriptures and the Old Testament, they learned about a lot about the kingdom, but then uh, that caused them to look forward to that. And because the church was a mystery, they, they, uh, they kind of were just like, hey, where's the kingdom? When is it going to come? The church is not a continuation of the Jewish nation under another name. The church is something new. Now, what, if you're saying, what does God... Want If I were to ask that today, what does God want for every Jew to do? Same as he wants for every Greek to do, or every, every, um, you know, every, every individual on the face of the planet, whatever you might call them. He wants them to accept Jesus, amen? He wants them to become a New Testament Christian. Uh, so some have said that Christianity is sort of a continuation of the, 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 uh, the, uh, the uh, Jewish religion, uh, but it's not a continuation of the nation of Israel. Amen. It's a different group. It's something you could say that God wanted every Jew to convert to. (laughs) You could put it that way. Although it's not a conversion. The nation of Israel was a biblical thing and is a biblical thing. But it's Old Testament. It's not new. Now that Jesus has come and been buried and died and risen again and ascended to heaven, He started the church. And so now we can ask Jesus to be our Savior. We can receive the Holy Spirit. He can indwell us. God wants that for every individual. So any Jew that hasn't done that yet, that is what God wants them to do next. Uh, But it's not a continuation of that uh, Jewish nation under a different name. It is not a nation. It's a body. Most of the prophetic teaching in the Old Testament and the Gospels refer to the kingdom. So this is where a lot of the confusion comes for Jews. They're looking forward to receiving the thing that they do see promised in the Old Testament. How can you really fault somebody for that, right? It's just natural that there would be a confusion there uh, because, you know, God was, progressively revealing the word of God to us, it's forever settled in heaven, isn't it? Amen. Uh, The word of God was written in eternity past, uh, but he progressively revealed it to man. It was progressively written down. Uh, You could say it's progressively inspired and and I think that's, you know, another one of those fancy schmancy terms that confuses us sometimes. It sounds like, you know, maybe I got an idea for a song I wrote. I got inspired, you know. Well, uh, God did inspire men. The Bible explains how the holy men of old were moved as they uh, spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So that's what inspiration is. It's just the recording of the word of God by by God communicating the words to certain men who would then write it down. Right. So that has been done progressively. So in the Old Testament, there was some confusion there before the new testament was revealed to man uh, so if we try to read the church into these passages we'll be confused too do you know there's people that, that, that get on these uh sort of uh you know they they sort of ride one doctrine as their little pet peeve you know and they'll just sort of get you know i'm convinced that this is the one thing we've got to have in our belief and our faith and they sometimes get it out of the old testament And the Old Testament is 100% true from beginning to end. Amen. All of Scripture is given by God, right? And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. It's all the word of God. And it's all 100% true. Even if there's a lie told in there, it's an accurate recording of the lie that was told. Amen. It's all true. I would never denigrate any of the word of God. But we shouldn't move to the Old Testament uh, for the foundational principles of how we should behave in the New Testament. Amen. We ought to get in the New Testament, figure out what the church is, how it works, and all that. And then get in the Old Testament to support that, figure out where it came from, figure out what happened with the nation of Israel. uh, And and that's how these things kind of go together. One supports the other. uh, But but we can get in the Old Testament and get a little confused if we try to turn the church into that, what we see in the Old Testament. Uh, Paul said that that the law is a schoolmaster, amen, so uh, we can look in the law and it can show us our sin, right, but that doesn't mean I look in the law and, and, you know, learn how to behave in the church, so, you know, we're beyond that now, we've just moved past that, it's not untrue, it's not to be thrown away, but it's just not how we, uh, how God governs the church, so the failure to make this biblical distinction, it can be seen in a couple different places, Roman Catholics, They build magnificent cathedrals. You ever seen any of those? I've seen some very impressive Roman Catholic churches in person, and it can be amazing. It's incredible. And the stuff that's in the the Church of England and things like that, uh, some of that stuff is really awesome. Why they build those cathedrals. Uh, Ordaining ritual priests like Old Testament priests who wear robes. Uh, So the cathedrals are like temples. The priests are like Old Testament priests. They wear robes. They try to uh, kind of... Inter, intervene in between god and man but the bible says there's one mediator between man and god the man christ jesus amen so this is an unbiblical idea uh, so but they wear robes and try to you know kind of reenact the old testament it seems like the, it, what is really going on trying to live by the law trying to live by works uh, semi-jewish ordinances called sacraments like sacrifices literal sacrifices happened in the old testament but that was ordained of god all right, So then when you try to move that into the New Testament and sacrifice, what are you doing? Well, uh, you know, look in uh, look in Hebrews chapter six, I think it is, where the Bible talks about when people, um, you know, kind of get an idea about what salvation is. Uh, but then what if they could fall away from that? The Bible says, I believe personally, it's given a hypothetical there. What does it say? If they could lose their salvation, they wouldn't be able to get it back again. Why does it say that? Oh, because it it spells it out. It says because that would be kind of uh, you know making a, a shame of what you know Christ did on the cross. It'd be making it as if it's worthless. What Jesus did on the cross is forever, amen? It's, it's, it's eternal and it's all-powerful. It is overcoming uh, to death. He, he defeated death and, and his salvation lasts forever. It's not something that could be lost because it is forever by definition, amen? Uh, he is God, so if he saves you, you can't even unsave yourself. I believe that's what the Word of God teaches, uh, right? So what are they doing? They're trying to re-sacrifice for Jesus, Amen. He's the perfect lamb. Uh, he's the good shepherd. He, what he has done is done. Don't try to stick with Do, try to go with done. Okay, I'm sorry. The sound guy's back there doing hand motions, and I thought, oh, no, am I late? (laughs) I was like, is there some kind of like a, you know, I don't know, those baseball things they do? I'm thinking, man, what am I doing? Am I running over time? I did that last time, so I don't want to do it again. (laughs) So the church is, uh, is not meant to be based on what's in the Old Testament. The church is not a kingdom. Jesus is said to be the head of the church, though, by the word of God, Ephesians 1.22. He's never said to be the king. Oh, but isn't Jesus the king of kings? I've heard somebody say that before. Is Jesus the king of kings? Somebody tell me. Is he? Yeah? Why? The word of God says so, right? But he also just is. He's God, right? So he, he's in command. Uh, without question, although he allows us uh, a lot of freedom, he is the one that's in command. Uh, Ephesians 1, And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. Notice it doesn't say he's the king says he's the head, right? How do you know that? If he's the king of kings, why isn't he the king of the church? Because there's no kings in the church, right? There's kings in the world. What it's saying when he says he's the king of kings is that he's, he's over all the, the earthly leaders there could be, over, over all men. He's, he's in command. He's, there's nobody that is more powerful or more in charge than he is. Uh, we ought to worship uh, God rather than man. We ought to obey God rather than man. We ought to worship God rather than, or the the creator rather than the creature. Amen. The church in the Old Testament was unseen by the Old Testament prophets. It was a mystery. We already discussed this a little bit, uh, but Ephesians 3, 2 through 5. If ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery... Uh, notice that he says there was revelation going on and that he uh, was receiving information from God. He made known to me the mystery. So the thing that God was telling him about was a mystery. What's revelation? When something is revealed, right? Previously, it was unknown or unknowable. So we just didn't have certain information like, you know, uh, I don't the the. I can't, well, salvation, something like that. Uh, But then there was unknowable information like creation. Nobody was there. You couldn't know that. So only the Holy Spirit could tell man, and then it could be recorded. So that's a good uh, example of inspiration going on in the Word of God is when creation was recorded. No one was there to observe it, right? So there's unknown and then unknowable information given through uh, through. Revelation, so he says there's a revelation going on, and God made known unto me, so what did he reveal to me? The mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when ye read, ye, uh uh-oh, I'm turning the pages wrong here. Uh, Ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages, the mystery of Christ, so Christ is the mystery, which in other ages, the Old Testament, was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit told men about the church. Amen. This wasn't something that was just kind of, again, like found in a field somewhere, the way some religions work it. It wasn't magically, you know, kind of, you know, it wasn't magically revealed. It wasn't something that that man created on his own. The Holy Spirit told us, and we just obeyed God. And said, okay, God, you want me to write that down? I'll write that down. And that's what these men did. Uh, and, And so God revealed the church to us because it was previously a mystery. The church was a mystery. It was not revealed in the Old Testament. But the kingdom was no mystery. It is the subject of extensive Old Testament prophecy, thus the confusion. You can see how all these writings about this subject, and so they thought, well, that, that must be what's coming. God, give it to us. Would you give us the kingdom? Well, guess what? There is a kingdom coming, uh, but it's not the, the kingdom that they were thinking that was going to be a physical kingdom at that time. It'll be after the church age is over. God's pur- purpose in this age, though, he wants to build his church. Uh, so look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 18 with me if you're turning I'm gonna turn for you if not Matthew 16 verse 18 again forgive me if I am moving fast I'm just a fast mover (laughs) if you missed anything ask me afterward and I will uh, probably talk fast again Matthew chapter 16 verse 18 is where we are is that right again I'm turning turning my pages wrong Matthew 16, verse 18, And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I like to use this verse uh, to reference the body of Christ. Why? Was Jesus saying he's going to build a church? He's going to take the stones and set the cornerstone, and then he's going to build the walls, and he's going to build a place to worship in? I don't believe so. Was he saying he's going to build a specific church in a specific location, a a local assembly? I don't believe so. I think he was talking about building the church as a whole. The body of Christ is what he's referring to here, right? So not, not talking about how it's, again, how it's governed or how we participate in it, but how it exists. He's just saying, I'll just build my church. I'm going to build the body of Christ. So in other words, Jesus was saying, here's what's about to happen. We're going to build this thing. There's going to be this group, and you're going to be members of it, and here it is. It's, it's the church. That's what we're going to do. Uh, so Acts chapter 15, verse 14. I won't turn there right now, but another good verse to support it. It is not... To establish, though, a vast, visible kingdom. So God's purpose right now is not to establish a kingdom. How do we know that? You ever heard of the millennial kingdom in the word of God? Right? Well, that's going to be a 1,000 years after the end of the church age. After the church is raptured up, that will happen. right? So the church age ends, some judgments happen, the millennial kingdom, etc. But, uh, you know, study all that out, and when you study end times, we don't have time for that right now, but uh, the, the millennial kingdom is going to happen, so why do I know this is not time for a physical kingdom that he's going to physically rule over because that is going to happen later. God will do this on earth, but not until the church is completed and raptured out. Uh, um, man, awesome information we're getting here. What the church is. Don't just figure out what the church is not, amen. If you just get a bunch of negatives in your theology, uh, you you don't, not not negative as in, bad or mean but if you just get a bunch of knots in your theology NOTs, then you don't get any iss or any r's or any you know positives then you'll be missing a lot of information what the church is is important information to get what's the definition the word church so when we see literally see the word church uh in the word of god uh that that didn't come from english amen in case you, you weren't aware they weren't speaking english back then when it was recorded and the word uh Ecclesiology, so the, the word church and the word ecclesiology both derive from the Greek word ekklesia. So why do those come from the Greek? Because that's the word it the, or the language it was recorded in. Amen? Not trying to be fancy and creating these theolo- theological terms. These theologians were not doing that. It's just straight out of what the original scripture was written down as. It was written down as Greek, and that word ekklesia was actually on the page. I've seen, you know, where it, you get these books and it has all the Greek laid out and you can follow all the greek words that you don't know and get to the one you do know ecclesia oh i know that one okay it's actually in there i've seen it uh not in original copies obviously in in modern modern printed copies but it's in there and ecclesia means a called out assembly how do we know that we study greek we learn the definitions. There's an entire nation full of Greek-speaking people. I knew a Greek-speaking girl in Bible college. She's friends with, with my wife, and uh, she would you know tell me different words and how they're actually pronounced and how we were learning it wrong in Bible college because we kind of learn it the American way, you know, and uh, all this stuff. is actually true. It's it's kind of an, an old you know way of speaking. The the biblical Greek is uh, called Koine Greek, but it is 100% true the meaning of these words. And when you break it down, you can see the roots. Prove it. Ek, or the, the root there in the beginning of the word ekklesia, means out of. And so how do we know we're supposed to come out of? How do we know we're called out? Well, the definition of the word is there in the root, out of. And klesia, to call of summons. And so it makes me think of one of my coworkers. What's a summons? Something you actually have to get called and asked to do, right? Well, he got summons for, uh, for court. So he's going to get, uh, uh, what do you call that, jury duty, <laughs> So I have to cover because he's my senior. He's, he's a senior developer on our team. Uh, so we're training me up in procedures that, that you have to do on government websites when the government shuts down. <laughs> I hope that doesn't happen. But if it does, I'll be posting all kinds of stuff on the website saying the government shut down, right? Uh, why? Because he's got that summons. He may have to go and get called out to do something. Probably will, it looks like they're saying. So we're a called out assembly. We're called and we're called out of. Ecclesiology, so, uh, then, is the study of doctrines concerning the church. So what's an ology? An ology is just a study of, right? So physiology, the study of, of the, the, the body and the, and the way the body is made up. Uh, ecclesiology, the study of ecclesia, right? Very, uh, very simple compared to what it sounds like. So it's the study of doctrines concerning the church, the called-out assembly of believers. Ecclesia, interestingly, is used 117 times in the New Testament. That's a lot. Man, you think it's all about the church, but how many times is the word going to be used? Guess how many times the word rapture is in the Bible? Can anybody tell me? None. <laughs> but how many times is the rapture in the Bible? A couple times, right? right. It, it, the subject is in there, but the word is just something that was created to talk about the subject of what occurs there, right? But ecclesia, man, that word is all up in there. 117 times. I bet you if you really dug in, you could find a lot more times the church is discussed where it doesn't use the word church, right? The body of Christ, all these other terms. Uh, it is used in several ways, but primarily in the following two ways in the New Testament, I love this, uh, because when you look at all those 117 times, I had to do that in Bible college, man, that was a lot of work. <laughs> you can see it really is these two primary uses. The body of Christ, so what are we talking about? The church uh, you know, exists universally, not the universal church. I'm not saying go out in the woods and worship and don't come to church. But it does exist all around the world. The church, what is that? The body of Christ. Something that we are all able to be members of without being enrolled as a you know, legal or, or official member of a called out uh, local assembly. Uh, but we can all be members of this body just by accepting Jesus as our Savior. Uh, it's all born again believers, meaning every born again believer. Not just only born again believers, but every born again believer in Jesus Christ, no matter what denomination location they're part of the body of Christ right it doesn't matter if you're a Baptist that matters it does matter but as far as whether you're in the body of Christ I was trying to scare people there did I scare you all right it doesn't matter whether you're in the body of Christ as far as whether you're a Baptist it really doesn't matter if you're some you know like far out denomination like snake handler or something (laughs) I'm trying to you know just pick the most random one I know about uh but it just matters whether you've accepted Jesus. That gets you into the body, right? Uh, so not, not uh, some theological belief you might have, but it's whether you've personally received him as your Savior. So entrance to the body of Christ. How do you get in? It requires repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and spiritual baptism into the body of Christ. Man, we could teach on this just this one sentence for months. <laughs> define all those words, break it down, pick all the passages through the word of God. You could do a preaching series on that. But hopefully most of us understand what, what these words mean, at least in the basics. Repentance, kind of turning away from something and changing direction, going the opposite way. I like to, to think that you know part of that repentance is repenting from being an unbeliever. Deciding, I no longer believe I'm trying to do it on my own, but now I'm saying, I trust you, Jesus, enough to ask you to be my savior because I believe that when I ask, you'll save me. Like that illustration Pastor did of the chair, we're not no longer floating over the chair. Now we're saying, oh yeah, Jesus, I do believe. I, I floated over the chair for a year, attending an independent fundamental Baptist church for a year, thinking that when I was 13, I'd accepted Christ, and now I'm 23. I, you know, I'm a little older than that now, not too much. A little, about three or four years older. Um, but man, when I was 10 years later, 10 years older, They gave me security of salvation, so they kind of gave me assurance of salvation, shared some verses with me. Hey, here's how you can, you know, be sure that what you did was going to give you salvation. I said, yeah, that sounds exactly like what I did. I was just, you know, kind of going along with the the act there. (laughs) I really didn't understand what I was doing. A year I attended an independent fundamental Baptist church. I went to every single service, never missed one service. I can't say that about my attendance here. I've done pretty good, <laughs> but I can't see I've been perfect. There, I never missed a service, ever. I went to every outreach opportunity. Every Saturday, I went. I went on a missions trip to Jamaica and told people about Jesus. I went soul winning and told people in the neighborhoods. I saw people get saved because my dad and I were telling them about Jesus. Together, we would normally be partners, and yet I was not saved. I was hovering over that seat. Yeah, I believe in this. Yeah, I trust in Jesus. I believe that I believed, but I didn't even understand, so I'd never really put my trust in Jesus. Amen. So we're talking about something where it is a matter of personal, not just, you know, my way, but it's me. I need to accept Jesus personally, and that did hit me about a year after I was hearing the gospel every day or every, every week. And uh, finally, I went, I went as a counselor to a teen camp for a week with some teens, and I got saved. <laughs> it was kind of uh, humbling. So, uh, but I was ready, man. I'd just been hearing enough about it and decided, hey, wait a second, that's, that's me. Uh, so entrance to the body of Christ, that's what it takes. Repent and then have faith in Jesus Christ, enough to actually ask him for salvation. Uh, and then you'll receive spiritual baptism into the body of Christ. All of these believers are baptized by the Holy Spirit. Here's that baptism into the body of Christ. What are we talking about? It's a spiritual baptism. The Bible, I don't believe, ever. You can take some verses and kind of interpret, uh, you know, a, a verse that's a little bit maybe less clear or something. You can kind of create your own doctrine out of it that maybe you might try to believe that the, the Bible says that the baptism is part of salvation. But let's look at the malefactor who died on the side of the cross, or on the, on the cross on the side of Jesus. Did he jump down on the cross, from, you know, from the cross and run off and get baptized and come back and jump on the cross and die? No, he just died on that cross. What did Jesus tell him? When he asked for salvation, Jesus said, today you're going to be with me in paradise. So where did his baptism happen? Was it a physical baptism? No. Uh, The Bible here is talking about spiritual baptism. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. What's the Bible talking about when it says we're baptized baptized? ...into the body or baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. What does it mean? Doesn't that mean that we're baptized in the water and that gets us entrance into the body of Christ? I don't believe so. Why? What would it mean? What would it mean otherwise? Well, I think it means the same thing as when we take that word baptism and use that to describe the submerging in the water. That's what baptism means. It just means submerging. If you look at the, the word baptizo in the, in the Greek, and then uh, some guys have gone back and been extra word nerdy about it and gone back way back into old Greek documents and found, hey, look how it gets used. It's in this recipe. And they found it in a recipe where they, they I think it was pickling, where they you know pickle different things. And it literally says to baptizo the thing that you're trying to pickle to submerge it into the fluid, right? So that's literally what it's saying here. Hey, you're submerged into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. It's, it's kind of an expression, I believe, uh, but definitely not saying that, that we need to be baptized to be saved. Otherwise, you know, how, what about the guy on, you know, that died beside Jesus? Jesus was being honest. I believe he's God. He cannot lie. Uh, the church or the body of Christ is unique in God's plan. Why do we say that? It's comprised of all who received Christ as Savior between resurrection and the rapture. What do we call that period? Jesus died, he was buried, he rose again. That was the resurrection. He ascended, right? He had some teaching before us right before he left, right before he ascended back to heaven pay attention to the teaching that was the last thing that Jesus told us right before he went back to heaven. Amen? Matthew chapter 28, right at the end of the chapter, it's called the Great Commission. Tell people about the gospel. That's basically what he said. The last thing he told men before he went back to heaven. Uh, His resurrection, though, was when he came back to life after dying and being buried. Between that and the rapture, when he'll come back in the air and we'll go up and meet him in the air, that's the rapture, the word that's never in the Bible but is all up in the Bible teaching, right? Uh, So... Between that beginning of the period and the end of the period, what do we call that? That's what we're discussing. That is the church. You could call it the church age, right? So it's unique in the fact that it only exists for a period of time. Is the nation of Israel abolished? I don't believe so. No, no. No, in fact, God is going to reinstate the nation of Israel. Amen. It is yet to, to happen. So we know that there's prophecy that hasn't come yet. Be careful where you, you place us in the timeline of the word of God. Amen. Some things that are yet to come, uh, that, that, that are promised to come, have not happened yet. And that places us dead smack in the middle of the, yeah, the, the, the end or the uh, Sorry, the, not the end times, but the, um, the latter days, right? But it doesn't put us in the millennial kingdom or anything like that. We're right in the church age. And so this is kind of right in the middle. There's you know the nation of Israel, and they just kept right on going. There's a millennial kingdom. That'll happen for a 1,000 years, but it hasn't even happened yet. But we're this temporary thing that kind of is stuck right there in the middle. Why? There's a purpose for that, to spread the gospel while Jesus isn't here. He means for us to be a a method, I think, of spreading the gospel, and we're to represent him him here on the face of the planet. So the New Testament local church, what uh, are we going over here? What the church is, the body of Christ, and what the church is, the New Testament local church. So it is that body of Christ that exists everywhere on the planet, but it is also the local assemblies. That's, I believe, how it's organized. So you can go to all kinds of verses here. I'll just turn to a couple of the 1 Corinthians 1, 2. Uh, what are we really doing here? We're trying to, you know, look at the, the verbiage that's used in the Word of God and see then what can we, you know, kind of infer that God believes. Let's, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. Unto the church of God which is at Corinth. Right? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. I could keep turning and turning and turning, but we've only got like two minutes left, so I can only share a couple of these. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he was an apostle. Amen. You can see it all up and through in the word of God. By the will of God and Timothy, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth. And it just keeps going and going down this list of verses. Do you guys have the list of verses in number two there? Yeah. I won't look them all up because, again, we have, I think, Thirty-nine seconds. No, it's six fifty-seven. So we only got a couple minutes. Uh, but man, it just goes on and on and on. The church here, the church there. What does that mean? He didn't write a letter and write it to the body of Christ and you know hook it to an eagle's foot and have the eagle drop it everywhere around the globe. He was saying, hey, the church that is at this place, the church that is at this place. Why? Because you can see those examples in the Bible about how the church was participated in locally and how there were pastors that were uh, sort of ruling if you will there there were authorities locally over those local assemblies and how the local assemblies would gather together how can there be a hebrews 10 25 assembling together if the church is not local amen it is a local church got local uh called out geographically distinct assembly of believers Here's the way he puts it in the notes, I believe is the best in those parentheses there, a local body. That's how we participate in the body of Christ is there is a local body. There is a local group uh, that is distinct geographically from the rest of the church. It's not that we're any different from the rest of the believers on the planet. Uh, There's over 90 of the 117 times the word church is used in the New Testament. It refers to the local geographically distinct assembly of believers. What are we saying? That's the only way it's used? No, notice, I love these notes. It specifies 90 of the 117 times. So sometimes it is referring to the body of Christ. But when we look at the fact that 90 of the 117 times it's used, it's referring to that local body. What can we infer from that? All kinds of things. It's the only thing that the apostles founded in the New Testament. I don't see anything else that they tried to create in any area when they went to that area. They were what you might call Church-planting missionaries. You could just call them that. There's all kinds of different ways of looking at it. You could call them evangelists if you want to, but they were church-planting evangelists, right? (laughs) So this is kind of their niche in ministry. Why? Because they were trying to spread the church, and God was doing that at that time. It wouldn't help to build a building for somebody at that time because there was no churches, right? They needed to get those churches started. So they were going around and founding local bodies of believers to participate together in church. There are many local churches. Look at Romans. Look at Galatians. There are many local churches. It's not just one. Uh, so there's this you know, kind of head church and everybody else participates in that from afar. Touch the screen you know, and you'll do whatever. I don't know what will happen. Uh, but it's, there's nothing like that going on in the word of God. Uh, entrance to the local church does have some requirements. Repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. It is totally biblical that we ask someone for their testimony of salvation before they officially join this church, especially because if they're not saved, we want to give them the opportunity to hear about the gospel. Uh, But that is required for membership, and that is listed out in Acts chapter nine. Water baptism, again, a a, a requirement for membership, not for salvation, uh, and a choice to join in fellowship and agreement in faith and practice of said local church. Look in Acts chapter nine, 26 to 28. uh, Paul uh, was trying to, to um, uh, it records what Paul was seeking to do when he went to Jerusalem he was seeking to do all these things he wanted to plant churches he wanted to have people join them and then he wanted to appoint pastors and have them train men to train other men this is just the biblical model that's there as the gospel spreads and people respond to it those in particular area uh, to, were to start a local church when they agreed uh, to work together as one so it's, again it's just how we participate in the body uh, in a church has an organization on earth, both pastor and deacon. So there is an organization uh, or a method of organization that God have, has prescribed. He has prescribed there be pastors. And he has prescribed there be deacons. And this is not some man-made thing or some, you know, just interpreting all things being done decently and in order. No, this is something he prescribed, and in fact there's qualifications for both of those offices listed in the word of God. So there's a comparison chart here and we'll, we'll be done after this. Uh, the difference between the body of Christ and the local church. The body of Christ is composed of all Christians and the local church, Christians in one location. The body of Christ, there's only one uh, and the local church, there's many. Uh, the body of Christ, you enter only by being added by the Lord and the local church enter by joining ourselves. So I voluntarily joined uh, Crossroads Baptist Church. The body of Christ, the Lord keeps the book of membership. So he literally keeps the book of life. Your name is written in it if you've accepted Jesus. Amen, that is a blessed thing. Uh, But the local church, we do keep uh, human roles. uh, Enrollment enrollment records are kept by humans. Uh, And then the body of Christ consists of all the saved. Uh, It has no earthly organization, has no pastors or deacons, can't be divided. Uh, You know, it's one body. The the word of God says death doesn't affect membership. It's all believers who've ever accepted Jesus, not just the ones living. Uh, But the local church can consist of both saved and lost. Why do we say that? Because how do I know you're saved? You say, you doubt my salvation? No, I'm saying I can't know for sure. I cannot, you know, get some magic glasses and figure out whether you're saved. I'm lucky, you know, that I got my salvation uh, settled, you know, because I was confused for a long time, and God just cleared it up for me, amen, praise the Lord, but man, I'm not even to try to determine if somebody else is saved except by asking them, it's the best I can do, so, and, and then people join churches and they get saved later, so there's how you know, right, so uh, it, it can consist of both save and lost, we would rather everyone be saved, so we try for that, but... Uh, in the end, we, we can't know for sure, has earthly organization. It has pastors and, de- and deacons, so we have some earthly uh, you know authority figures underneath God. It can be divided, so we divide it geographically, and then death does affect membership, of course. So I'm three minutes over. I apologize. <laughs> Man, I need to learn to stop on time. I need to learn to stop ahead of time, right? Amen. Let's pray, and we'll be dismissed. Tell Mike Wells, thank you so much for such great information. Uh, These notes are awesome. Take them home, study them. Learn about the church. Man, you're a part of it. If you learn about what the Bible says about the church, you'll learn what your place is in the church. In other words, how you can participate in it. That's a great thing to know, isn't it? Amen. All right, let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for this time, Lord. Thank you for the fact that we uh, come together to learn about the Bible, learn doctrines. What an important thing to learn, God. Uh, the truth that's delivered in your word and how we can understand more about the church. God, we pray that you'd apply the truth we learned tonight to our hearts. Lord, we pray that you'd grow, grow grow us closer to you. Lord, we pray that you'd use us, use us in this area to spread the gospel of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being here tonight.